You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Good morning, everybody. It's uh, or afternoon or evening, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, it's good to have you with us for this Sunday. I had a phone call recently uh, with a member of the congregation. It was just a catching up phone call. And on the uh, as we were talking, we got to talking about how people have a different understanding of who Jesus is. And we uh, both laughed at the fact that many people call Jesus Lord but act like he is the servant because all they do is ask him for things instead of actually being the servant to the Lord and finding out what Jesus wants for them to do. And it was funny to me because mostly when we think of people who have the wrong idea of Jesus, we think about people in the Bible who didn't recognize him as the Messiah. But it's quite true that even today, many, many people, and including many people in the church, have a poor idea about who Jesus is and how we are to relate to him. So today is the first day of a series of uh, on the parables of Jesus. And I've, I've got the first one. That's really great. I'm doing a parable about the wicked tenants in the vineyard. And it's quite appropriate because it's all about the leader's uh, of the Pharisees not recognizing who Jesus was. And uh, a, a, a parable, a parable is a memory hook. It's a story to help us understand a teaching of Jesus. There are lots of um, things that are taught to us in the Bible that I've got no idea, can't remember. But if I was to say to you, the Good Samaritan, uh, the Prodigal Son, the Lost Sheep, Instantly, you would remember those stories and remember some of the theological teaching that goes with those stories. So that's what a parable is. It's a memory hook that helps us to remember a special teaching of Jesus. So we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 23 to 45. So if you've got your Bibles there, you can open them up. Uh, I'm going to read through the, uh, the passage stopping along the way to talk about some of the things that we've read. But let me set the context. Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Uh, He's entered in triumph. It's the Passover. He's been welcomed with shouts and songs and praises, and uh, uh, all of Jerusalem is talking about it. He's called the son of David. There's a real buzz in the atmosphere. He's gone into the temple. He's cleansed the temple. He's driven out the money changers and those who are buying and selling. And now he's in the temple and he's teaching the people. And all the ordinary people are amazed and excited. But the leaders uh, of the people, the the Pharisees and the elders and so on, they're all concerned because they fear that Jesus will start a revolution. And if that happens, the Romans will come in, they will destroy the city, they will take over the country properly, and they're really worried about that. So... Uh, they come to Jesus in the temple where he's teaching the people. And they say to him, they ask him two questions. And uh, so here's where we start in, in verses 23 and 25. They say, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? And, of course, Jesus does the Jewish rabbi thing and he answers their question with a question of his own. So let's see what happens. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people come to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, 
I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? And this, of course, put the leaders in a pickle. Because remember, there's a crowd around Jesus. He's been teaching them. So it's not like one-on-one with Jesus. There's all these people listening to their answer too. And so verse 25 continues. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. Now, notice the way they discussed this. They didn't talk about what was the truth, what was the real answer. They talked about what answer can we give that will make us look good. And they couldn't think of one. So in the end, they refused to answer Jesus' question. So Jesus then says he won't answer theirs. At least not in as many words, but he does. He tells two parables that answer the question about John's uh, authority and Jesus' authority. But uh, let's take a closer look. Matthew uh, 21, verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the, today in the vineyard. Now, here's an important point. When Jesus talks about a vineyard in his parables, he's referring to Israel. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, Isaiah writes, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. So it was a really common understanding that Israel was God's vineyard and that the uh, the people in the vineyard were, were God's people. So um, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Then Jesus asked the leaders this question. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Now, so here the leaders agree that people in Israel can be those who look like dutiful sons but fail to do the will of God and others who don't look like dutiful sons because they say no, they reject what God asks, but they are doing God's will. Jesus finishes the parable with a punchline that shows the failure of the leaders to recognise John will be their own condemnation. He says to them, verse 31, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus has answered the question about John. You know, he was there to teach them righteousness from God. And they, even though when they saw the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners in, in their life, turning their lives around and repenting and being baptized, they still failed to recognize John as a prophet. The leaders were the ones who talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. Now, Jesus launches into the second parable, which is the one we're going to focus on this morning. But first, a little bit more background from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5, he talks about the vineyard and he says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it 
and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it and he looked for it to yield grapes. And this is where in verse 7, Isaiah says the vineyard of the Lord is the nation of Israel. So the chief priests and the elders and even the people would be familiar with the idea, the concept that the vineyard is Israel, that the the owner of the vineyard is God, and that uh, the people in the vineyard are the people of Israel. And this is what Jesus said. And he begins his parable in exactly the same way that Isaiah does so that they make those connections. But then he he puts a, a, a twist in it. So Jesus said, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. So that's where he sets up the parable to remind them of the parable of Isaiah about building, you know, towers and vineyards and so on. But then he puts a new spin on it. He says, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. So in the the context of the parable, these servants represent the prophets that God has sent to the people of Israel to warn them to repent and to come back to worshipping God. And uh, they were ignored or they were beaten or they were killed by the leaders. And, uh, and so this is the, the, those uh, servants represent the, uh, the prophets. But then Jesus comes to the important part of the parable and it's here that he's answering the leader's question about his own authority. Verse 37, Finally he sent his son to them saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So here, Jesus is the son. The the owner of the vineyard, the father, represents God. Jesus is the son of God. That's where his authority comes from. He's been sent by God to the people of Israel, the tenants in the vineyard. But he's predicting that they are going to cast him out and kill him. So the parable is a memory hook about Jesus and his authority and his prophecy about what's going to happen to him. But there's more. Verse 40, Jesus asks the leaders, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the leaders said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Those who have rejected the son will be cast out and replaced with new tenants. The new tenants at that time were the Gentiles, and we are their descendants. We are the new tenants called upon to produce fruit for the vineyard owner. Those new tenants, that's us. In verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's saying to the leaders of the people, you're not producing fruit. You are not doing the things that God wants of you. I'm going to give it the the vineyard to people who will produce fruits. And the response of the, the chief priests 
and the leaders of the people is very interesting. In verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people held him to be a prophet. See, did you want to highlight this? The leaders perceived he was speaking about them. They understood the parable, but their focus was not on the authority of Jesus. Their focus was on themselves. They felt insulted that they would, uh, that they would be accused of being like the wicked tenants. And here we have the problem of humanity in one sentence. Jesus does these amazing things, amazing miracles, raising the dead, healing the sick. He gives brilliant theological lessons. He's cleansed the temple. The people are amazed at his understanding. And all the leaders can do is think of themselves, their own dignity, their own authority, their own position as leaders, their own righteousness, which is really a self-righteousness, and they decide to kill Jesus to get rid of this problem. They thought more about who Jesus was and less about their own self-importance. The whole story of the church might have been very different. But let me summarise the parable. The parable tells us that God's special people will be expanded to include the non-Jews and that Jesus is no ordinary messenger from God, but the Son of God, of the same flesh as God. Jesus is God. And in the context of the parable, in the religious leaders' failure to recognise Jesus, they failed to do so because they were constantly concerned about themselves and not about the message from God. So how does this apply to us? The old tenants failed to provide fruit and in the end were rejected by God. And we are the new tenants. We have to ask ourselves, are we providing fruit for God? Jesus says in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Are we producing the fruits of the kingdom? Are we faithful tenants paying the rent when demanded? Think about the parable of the two sons. Which of those two sons are we like? All talk and no action? Or doing our best to serve the Lord, even if we say the wrong thing at times? When you join the army, you take an oath. Uh, an affirm or an affirmation to serve Queen Elizabeth and her heirs and successors. The wording goes like this. I, insert your name, swear that I will well and truly serve Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, her heirs and successors according to law as a member of the Australian Army, and that I will resist her enemies and faithfully discharge my duty according to law, so help me God. Faithfully discharge my duty. Right from the beginning, we expect soldiers to be faithful. You volunteer to join the Army, but once you've joined... Your days of volunteering are ended. When you take the oath, you become subject not just to the laws of Australia, but to the laws of the military. And what that means is that your feelings, your wants, your desires are no longer important. Your wishes and wants don't matter anymore. You have to do as you're told. Don't want to go to work? Too bad. You get charged with being absent from a place of parade, find a day's wages or more if it's a repeat offence. Don't feel like wearing a uniform? 
with long sleeves, long leg pants, boots in 40 degree heat? Too bad. You've joined. You have to do as you're told. Your feelings don't count. Don't want to iron your uniform, don't want to salute, don't want to do PT, don't want to sleep in mud, carry heavy loads on your back and get by on two hours sleep a night for extended periods of time? That's, I'm sorry, you've joined up. That's what it's for, all about. You took the oath, your feelings don't count, you are no more important than anyone else wearing the uniform. Well, let's compare that to a volunteer organisation. Say, uh, a volunteer in an op shop. You don't want to go to work? That's fine, no problem. Just let us know you're okay. It's cool. Don't want to iron your clothes? No problems. We live on the Gold Coast. Shorts and thongs are pretty much standard dress. Don't want to carry heavy loads at work? That's all right. Somebody else will do it. No oaths taken. Your feelings count. You are important. And you do what you want to do. The difference between a volunteer organisation and an organisation where you are duty-bound to do as you're told. Now, my friends, here's where the rubber hits the road. There are people who are Christians who think that belonging to Jesus is the same as belonging to a volunteer organisation. Don't want to read the Bible? Don't. Don't want to care about our neighbours? No problems. Don't want to pray? Don't want to go to church and fellowship with others? That's okay. Your feelings count. God might be calling you to do something uncomfortable and you don't like being uncomfortable. That's okay. If it's a volunteer organisation, your wishes dominate. I have some sad news to tell you. The church is not a volunteer organisation and none of that applies. Belonging to Jesus is not the same as belonging to a volunteer organisation. Oh, we volunteer to join, like just like you volunteer to join the army. But once you've joined... Your life is no longer yours. It was bought at a price. Jesus is Lord. That makes you the servant of the Lord. And it's not the servant who gets the Lord to wait on them. The Lord gets the servants to do his will. It's his will that's important, not our will. A servant doesn't get to put his will first. That's the way it goes. And Sadly, many of us in our prayers spend a long time telling Jesus what we want him to do for us. But don't take any time to try and find out if Jesus wants us to do something special for him. Jesus said there were two commandments from the Old Testament. Do you remember what they were? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body and soul. That's with everything. Not with just a part of your life, with all of your life. And the second was like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And then in the New Testament, Jesus gave his disciples a third commandment, which was to love one another. Is that how you live your life? With a total focus on Jesus and what he asks of you? James chapter 2, verses 18 to 20 says, I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is dead? Do our lives reflect the fact that we believe in one God? Do our lives reflect the fact that we have given ourselves to Jesus, claimed him as our Lord, and we are his servants? God doesn't want us 
to be Christians who talk the talk but don't walk the walk. He doesn't want us to get baptised and then hang around in this world until we die and get to heaven. He wants us to do things in this life that will expand the kingdom of God. But the problem is we see ourselves as volunteers. We don't see ourselves as duty-bound, but we are. For a volunteer, almost anything is negotiable. For a person who is duty-bound, faithfulness is expected. How faithful are we in our Christian walk? And that's the question for us from this parable. How faithful are we in our Christian walk? How do we respond to God? He's provided us with all our needs. He sent his son to us and he wants us to produce fruit. Not a hard thing. Not as hard as we might imagine. Because John tells us in chapter 15 that Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Bears much fruit. How? Because we abide in him. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So it's not like we have to actually work really hard to produce fruit. What we have to do is maintain our connections with Jesus and he will give us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will work in our lives to produce the fruit. But what are we doing to maintain our connection with Jesus our Lord? Being connected is about opening up our lives so that the Holy Spirit work in our lives. Just recently, Steve has been preaching on a series on establishing rhythms in our life. And those rhythms uh, have been a whole lot of different things that we can do to establish a life that is more focused on God than our normal secular lives. The rhythms mean setting aside times for prayer, times for Bible reading, times for fasting, times for fellowshipping with other Christians, getting involved in small groups and small tables, giving someone a call on a phone just to see if they're all right, listening to music that focuses our attention on God, doing the things that will keep us connected to other Christians, keep us connected to church, keep us connected to God, so that we are in a position to hear what God is trying to say to us that he wants us to do that will produce fruit in our lives for the kingdom of God. As we develop those rhythms, we learn to hear the voice of God. We learn to hear what he is saying to us and we'll discover what else it is that he wants us to do. So to summarise then what I've had to say this morning, all we need is being provided for us by God. In return, he expects our lives to produce fruit for the kingdom because we've been drawn into the kingdom because when Jesus came, the Jews rejected him. So Jesus has expanded the people of God to include all of us. And in return, he expects us to bear fruit for the kingdom. He is our Lord. We are his servants. And that Lord-servant relationship means that we serve him, not the other way around. And if we have surrendered our lives to him, we're no longer in a volunteer situation. We are duty-bound to serve him because we have surrendered our will to his will. And to be faithful servants, we need to be doing the Lord's will, 
maintaining a connection with him so that we can allow him to produce the fruits in our lives that he is expecting. And to do that, we need to develop spiritual rhythms in our lives so that we can know what God's will is for us. So just close with three questions for you to think about. Question one, do I think more about myself than I do of Jesus? If so, what can I change in my life so that I think more about Jesus? What can I do to acknowledge that Jesus is my Lord? Is my life, question two, is my life a witness to others? What sets my life apart from my secular neighbours that when they look at me, they will say there is something different there? And three, have I established a spiritual rhythm in my life? If not, when will I start? I wish God's blessing upon all of you and that these words that I've had to say are not just my words, but that through them God will speak to you and that you will be encouraged in your faith and encouraged to make more connections with God. God bless you all and thank you for your attention. Goodbye.